0: grapple fans, and welcome to the first installment of the most beloved annual tradition in all December. It's Let Me Tell You Something's Rerun the Rivalry, number two, Electric Boogaloo, in which myself, you Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host,
1: Simon Cross,
0: go through a famous rivalry in the history of wrestling at all the key chapters from its beginning to, at least as time of recording, What Is Its End?, Last year, we provided you the ultimate generational conflict of when Will Kazuchiro Okada claimed the role of ace of the company from Hiroshi Tanahashi. Now, we're covering another rivalry that was equally significant, really, in the promotion that it was a part of. It's not a generational conflict, but it is definitely a story of one person trying to ascend to another person's level. And it doesn't take place over as long a period of time, and it's not as clean-cut and clear as... Tanahashi Okada is. But Simon, if you just want to introduce people to what we're going to be talking about, where we are for the first match, and then we'll do a little bit more of laying the groundwork before we get into the match itself.
1: Okay. So the uh rivalry we're going to be discussing on this series, everyone rerun the rivalry, is between Nigel McGuinness and Brian Danielson. So we find ourselves at the beginning of the story. On the 29th of April, 2006, at the Cleveland Greys Armoury, at Weekend of Champions Night 2, where they are first facing each other in a title versus title match, fought under Ring of Honor pure rules. McGinnis being the pure champion defending, and Danielson being the world champion defending.
0: This was my suggestion for a rerun The Rivalry. How aware were you of the Danielson-McGuinness series of matches going into this?
1: So I was aware in waves. So my first wave of awareness would be uh, the issues of Power Slam. I was reading around the time that this rivalry was taking place. I think 06 was was during my Power Slam reading years before the magazine sadly uh, perished a few years later. So, they always, like, spoke about the McGuinness-Danielson rivalry at uh, quite big length. And they had particular praise for one match, which we will touch late on later in this series. So, so I always knew it held a special place in many people's hearts. But I'd, I'd largely, like, you know, just let it go by the wayside into the archives of my memory. And then Nigel McGuinness started on collision.
0: <laughs> then he started to chat some shit.
1: <laughs> but as of yet not been banged for it yes <laughs> and actually the uh message i sent to you lawkin whilst i was watching this match is it's nice to see that mcginnis wrestles like he
0: commentates <laughs> we'll get into that a bit more in a second i think for a lot of people this might be the artistic peak of ring of honor this series of matches I think a lot of, to a lot of people, the case has been that Brian Danielson is the greatest wrestler of all time. And his run as Ring of Honor World Champion was probably the starting blocks of that idea. Because that was when he was being played up as the best wrestler in the world. His run before then in Ring of Honor had been always slightly stop start. He was famously part of the main event of the first ever show with Loki and Christopher Daniels. But their intention, I think, was always to build it around Loki as the top face and Daniels as the top heel, and Danielson as more of a utility player that could go up and down the card where needed. So they gave him the big clean victory over Loki in the singles match they had at the second show, but then three shows later, when they're having the world title match, Danielson is the one of the three that's not involved because he got knocked out in the semifinals in the previous show by Doug Williams. And it was that initial rivalry of Danielson with Doug Williams that really got carried over into this one with Nigel McGuinness. Because Nigel McGuinness was able to step into that role that Doug Williams had a lot more easily for Gabe Sapolsky. Because unlike Williams, Nigel McGuinness was US-based. He's a little bit older, actually, than most of the guys involved in Ring of Honor. At this point, I think he's either 29 or he's 31. I can't remember what his age was. On he's somewhere between 29 and 31 at this point in the that we're watching. And Danielson, I think, is still only like 26. 20, yeah, he must be 26 because he follows the... I think he was born in 1980. Oh, okay. But he's basically mid-20s. Because Danielson's focus in the first few years of Ring of Honor was just getting the miles in. He loved going to the UK and doing that scene, and that's why he also loved working with Doug Williams so much and was who he was partnered with as a rival in the first, couple, in the first year or so of Ring of Honor. And then he was also trying really hard to become the top Gaijin Jr. of New Japan. He went to the New Japan LA Dojo, He tried to work his way up in that system. He and Christopher Daniels as Curryman won the IWGP Jr. heavyweight tag team titles. <laughs> But this was at the height of enoki and New Japan just going absolutely bonkers in their booking decisions. There's a famous co-produced show with Ring of Honor where they did an American version of the best of the Super Juniors and they lost to Kendo Gashin going under the name of Dragon Soldier B. Because Kashin was this shoot wrestling background. And that was also still when New Japan was under the Anoki influence of wanting to go with MMA. And Kashin himself was never seen as a particularly... One of the more duller wrestlers to ever come out of the New Japan Dojo system. So that, that whole tournament just was a stink. And it really did feel at that point that Danielson just was not going to get that work in Japan. And so then he comes back to Ring of Honor as a more regular member. He was always there. And again, as I said, he was a utility player put up and down the card. He would; They would give him some big wins occasionally, like winning the survival of the fittest tournaments, which was also the coming-out party for Austin Aries, but then he was being used as a means to get Austin Aries over. Uh, he had a run of matches with Homicide, but again, he was just always sort of up a mid-card, drop him into the main event scene if we need the world title challenger, if necessary, for a big show. But he wasn't the full-time commitment. But then, after CM Punk and the Summer of Punk... They've put the bells on James Gibson, but Gibson's also only going to be a short spell. He also was WWE bound. And at that point, he and Gabe Sapolsky sort of settled into it, and they were like, Danielson's going to come back, repackage slightly. We're going to give him the world title immediately. Like, he went away after losing a title match to Austin Aries. And at that point, he had this big bushy beard and shaved head, and he was also, at the time they were thinking of bringing him into the WWE, Because he said that, um, who was the guy that was the top booker, top creative guy that also, like, he basically goes around with The Rock all the time since then?
1: Brian Gerwitz, or Gerwitz.
0: Gerwitz. I think it was him. It was someone in a position of authority on the creative side that saw Danielson with that big beard. And he was going to try and pitch that Danielson be hired by the WWE and be like the Bobby Fisher of wrestling, like this incredibly talented genius in the ring, but also completely mad. You assume they drop the anti-Semitism aspect. I was
1: about to ask you about that. Having watched Bobby Fisher versus the world. <laughs>
0: I mean, it's so funny that they do that, and then when he comes back to win the title off of James Gibson, he's like full, clean-cut, nice, short, back-and-sides haircut. He looks like Bob Backlund, and he even wins the match with the cross chicken wing.
1: Ah, that's where that factors in.
0: Yeah, and so at that point, it becomes... Because Sapolsky always knew that Danielson was an amazing wrestler. He just knew that he didn't have the full commitment from him until this point. And Loki's been long gone at this stage... <laughs>
1: Or well, he's been back
0: and forth, and he's been long gone several times. And Christopher Daniels was obviously a part of that whole TNA split that had happened as well. Yeah. And so they'd already had the Roman with Samoa Joe. They'd had the Roman CM Punk. They needed someone of that caliber of ability to be the, the focal point of the promotion as the world champ. And Danielson took that on, and this was the first time that he really got to run as the ace of a promotion. He always had the ability to be an ace, but this was his time being booked, being positioned... Putting in the commitment, being full on, full time with the company. At this point, it's about seven or eight months into it. And that Danielson character of being the best in the world is so clear. Because if you just let him wrestle, pretty fucking obvious. You know? Yeah. Like, Danielson is going to be another one of those guys like Bret Hart, where his matches will always stand the test of time. Because everything he does, he does well. Like, there is not a single step. There's maybe one moment in the first match where it seems like McGuinness freezes for a split second in the ring whilst they're doing a mat wrestling exchange. Mm. But other than that, I bet you probably won't see a single mistake in anything in this series. And that's also because of McGuinness as well. And this whole series of matches is maybe the best example of Danielson bringing up another guy. Because after Danielson has his run with the world title, the story focal point going on after that was Nigel McGuinness. And it's these series of matches that gets us there And then we see it at that point later on. But as is often the case with a lot of these great rivalries, you can break them up into chunks and into little chapters. And these first three matches are a great little mini trilogy in and of themselves. Yeah. And it's fascinating how you book it to build a person up over three matches to a stronger position. And yet, oddly, they win the first match. But the story going out of it is that he's still not on that level, as weird as it sounds
1: yeah he does win the first match but he wins it in a way which isn't really in keeping for the a the rules of the match and b that subset of rules which he's the figurehead of he's meant to be representing that
0: well i was so frustrated as a fan at how the pure wrestling title was booked after it was created i remember i was a ring of honor forum guy at this point i was a full robot roh bot And they'd been long pushing the idea of the notion of there being pure wrestling. And there'd be these matches where they were saying, this is wrestling at its purest. Involving guys like Chad Collier, Matt Stryker, BJ Whitmer, Nigel McGuinness, Doug Williams, etc, etc. They were teasing this title. And I actually pitched on the forum my idea of a pure wrestling title. But my idea was going down the British rules way of there being rounds and two out of three falls. Yeah. And seconds in the ring. And I remember Gabe Sapolsky was one of the few times that he, like, responded to a post in the forum. And he just gave a little smiley face. (laughs) And then literally a few weeks later, they announced the introduction of the pure wrestling title. But their rules were a lot more inspired by the UWFI with the rope breaks. yeah. So the fundamentals of the pure wrestling title matches are that you don't use closed fists, there's a 20 count on the outside of the ring, and you only get three rope breaks. And once you use those three rope breaks, the ropes are in play. Again, I like I got it, the notion of restricted rules placing an emphasis on a particular style of wrestling that you want to have. Yeah. In a way, it was Ring of Honor's response to the X Division in a weird way. It's like the opposite end of it. But of course, the X Division didn't like implement specific rules or even weight limits. The whole thing was it was a stylistic choice.
1: It's about no limits, not weight limits.
0: Exactly. And so, the pure title. I think the big mistake they had at the start was who they wanted to go with. They wanted to make it as big a belt as possible, so they put it on AJ Styles, and they had him beat CM Punk in the final. Mm. When in the build-up to it, all the people that they were saying as the pure wrestlers were guys like Matt Stryker and Doug Williams and so on and so forth, and they were all knocked out in the process. And as great in-ring performers as AJ Styles and CM Punk are, there was nothing in what they were doing that was particularly unique to pure wrestling. And as I've long said, CM Punk's strengths are not his technical abilities. As fine as they are, it's everything else around it. Yeah,
1: and uh, again with AJ like, nothing wrong with what he does, technically. It's just not what I pay to see when I am paying to see an AJ Styles match.
0: But I think it was always also a case of, with AJ Styles, they always wanted him there, but they were never going to push him in the same way that they pushed... He was being pushed at the same time in TNA. Yeah. But it's like, obviously there's certain restrictions on how strong or how weakly you can book AJ Styles before TNA will put in the rules. So the idea of making him like the champ of a separate division, and then implying that he's a separate but equal champion to Samoa Joe. And from the start, the pure wrestling title was constantly being challenged for its legitimacy by the world champ by Samoa Joe, saying the reason you invented it. It's kind of like Roman Reigns with the Undisputed title and the new world title, saying the only reason you invented this belt is because no one can beat me for my belt. Yeah. Then you had the whole Rob Feinstein scandal, and then all the TNA talent was pulled out. So that puts that put a brakes on like CM Punk's feud with Christopher Daniels, and it meant you had you know after his first defense of the, the title as the first champion, AJ Styles is out, and they've got to restart the belt again. That time they then put it on Doug Williams, which fit more the aesthetic, and they had him going against. Alex Shelley, a similarly good guy for that division. Then after that Doug Williams, but Doug Williams again because he was a he never like Nigel McGuinness made the commitment to America and Danielson as well really. He dropped the belt pretty soon after to I think it was John Walters from Stoke. No, unfortunately not. Oh, what? <laughs> There are a series of these guys that Ring of Honor were trying to make stars out of around this time that didn't quite hit it off, like Matt Stryker, not that Matt Stryker, a different Matt Stryker. I was going to
1: say, you never, like, when you said Matt Stryker several times, I'm like, he's weirdly never bagged
0: on this guy yet. (laughs) So this is, this is Stryker with a Y, and his main distinguishing feature was that he had a unibrow. And Ring of Honor kept pushing, him, but he just had no personality under the skills and the fans just gradually turned on him because they got this sense that he was being shoved down their throats. And there's this famous time he had a match against Samoa Joe, where someone in the crowd yelled, you're not even the best match striker. Nah. And Samoa Joe broke, and started laughing at that point. So his days were numbered there. And John Waters was another one of those guys, had all the technical basically all those people that were trying to be Chris Benoit, but whilst Chris Benoit... For all his faults, obviously, as a human being. And everyone always criticised him of being all work. There was an aura to him. Mm. There was a look. There was an intensity that none of these other guys could match. The Chad Colliers, the John Walters. I mean, all
1: these names going straight over my head. Except for John Walters, but not that John Walters.
0: <laughs> and then John Walters did the ultimate no-no. He appeared on an episode of Raw as a jobber whilst a champion. Ooh. So, like, almost immediately after that, Ring of Honour had him drop the titles to Jay Lethal, who, again, worked more within the style of what they were doing, but he was also very young. And so then they had Jay Lethal drop the titles to Samoa Joe. Mm. Because Samoa Joe had lost the World title, and ironically, now he had the pure championship and was going to try and build up the titles that he decried. But again, Samoa Joe doesn't quite fit into that aesthetic.
1: No, not not fully, no.
0: There was always this stop-start sense with the pure title. And I think the big problem that... I always had was that they didn't work within the the rules of the match to, to challenge themselves. The matches became about the rules and about them trying to be clever with the count or trying to be clever with the rule breaks. Because the notion of the limiting of rule breaks is the idea that it's the pure wrestling championship so you're trying to not get out of a hole just by going to the ropes. You're trying to get out of it by outskilling your opponent. The yeah. one moment in the Brian Danielson-Zack Sabre Jr. match that Nigel McGuinness is providing commentary to where Danielson reaches for the ropes is Nigel starts calling him a coward for not doing it the <laughs> proper
1: way. <laughs> Which, mm, when, when, when you look at this... <laughs>
0: And so then they finally hit on something with Nigel McGuinness, and they have they gave him a long run with the belt, fit it because he he didn't initially start because he went to America to train up, and I think he just always focused himself on trying to make it in America. Yeah, he never really had a run in the UK scene until he had to go back for like visa issues and everything. But his whole point was to get to America and wrestle an American star, and I think it was William Regal that met him once and told him stick out, embrace your Britishness. So then Nigel goes through, like, a few different personalities in Ring of Honor to get up to where he is, because he's just like a, a guy they bring in when they're around the area. He's just a hand that they have. He's not, like, a regular roster member. I remember seeing him in, like, a four-corner tag team match or something, and there was just, like, this one-minute period of the match where everyone, like, gets their moment to shine, essentially. And Nigel's was doing, like, a Johnny Saint, you know almost magic act where he's tricking his opponents and doing backwards and forwards and everything, and that got him over with the crowd first doing the British Johnny Sane chain wrestling stuff, yeah, gradually he was getting more and more over he was standing out more, and he had you know out of all the you know a, a, an indie scene where everyone's struggling to get into some of the rides at Alton Towers at times for their size, a fellow with some size both in height and weight. Just always immediately adds a certain amount of legitimacy to them. It just does, yeah. the honest truth. What makes Brian Danielson work is weirdly in this whole series of matches. He's what six inches taller than Nigel. This isn't a battle of physical equals, but Danielson's so talented, and you see it, the way that he works these matches is how he's able to. Be- be the guy with the advantage, even when he's against guys like Samoa Joe. Or...
1: Yeah. So Nigel is built fifty pounds heavier than him in these matches.
0: He's billed as being six foot three, so in wrestler height that probably means about six foot one, six foot two. <laughs> but if Brian Dangerson's like a legit five eight, then, and he's got the weight. It's clear that Nigel was doing everything to get to a higher level on the way that he was presenting himself. But when you're working in the indie scene, you've also got to work at a harder rate to get over in this ring of honor scene. And he had both, and he had that too. But God, does he punish himself physically through the course of these matches to get to where he does. To and to an extent that unfortunately leads to his path compared to Danielson's path. After all this is said and done, but we haven't got to that sort of fundamental tragedy of Nigel McGuinness yet in these. So, Nigel's the first one that gets a proper good run with the pure title. He won it in August from Samoa Joe. And he's held it right up to this point. So, this is April. By far, this is the longest run someone's had with the title. Most consistent title defenses. But, again, the pure champion is not the best pure wrestler. And that's even explained in this match. And said by Brian Danielson in the introductions before the match even starts. (laughs) At this point, Nigel's working the cowardly heel. Like, it's, it's not a honky-tonk man, but it's not far away from it. He wins matches by using his iron as a weapon, which was the thing he just... That was his gimmick, and he came out with an iron. He was using tricks to win by count-outs. He was not defending it honourably.
1: <sighs>
0: so, like, th- yeah, this is like a title versus title match, but within the perspective of the fans going in, this is like Randy Savage or Hulk Hogan going up against the honky-tonk man. This is not a clash... Of equals. But. Through the course of these matches. We do gradually get there. Yeah. What's also fascinating with this match as well. Is the dynamics are that this is ultimately. A heel versus heel match. But in a slightly different way. In that it's. A cowardly heel. In the form of McGuinness. Against like your Harley Race type of heel. In that. They're just so good. That it can be frustrating. And, And the way that ring of honor book their champions around this time Samoa Joe James Gibson and Brian Danielson was in more of a tweener role so that they could defend against babyfaces or heels and when they're against the babyfaces if there's someone you really root for them to win then they're the bullying heel you know look at how Samoa Joe worked against CM Punk in the match we cover for the five star project in that one he's the overwhelming heel yeah but then when he's against the sneaky underhanded violent homicide He's the, you know, he's the top face. He's almost like like Ric Flair or Harley Race, depending on what territory he's in is how he's working the match. And so with Danielson, when he's up against Roderick Strong, he's the bullying heel. But when he's up against Kenta, he's the defiant babyface working through a shoulder injury.
1: Defending the promotion's honour, Yeah,
0: exactly. When he's against Jimmy Rave or someone from the embassy, he's a babyface. But he might be a babyface who's still... Harsh and, you know, underhanded when needs be. Yeah. And so with this match, what's interesting is that they both kind of have babyface moments and heel moments. And I think it's also significant that it's in Ohio, which was really the area where Nigel McGuinness first built any kind of reputation as essentially the the local ace of the Heartland Wrestling Association, which was run by Les Thornton, who also trained Nigel McGuinness. That was also the homeland promotion for a while for one John Moxley, too. Yeah, I was going to say I've heard, I've heard that name before. And at one point, it had been a developmental territory too. And I wonder if that might be one of the reasons why McGuinness again had chosen to go over there.
1: Yeah, makes sense.
0: What I love about this match, and what I also love about what Danielson does, is that Danielson knows how best to get the best match out of restrictions, rather than being cutesy poo with them. Like, too often people use the rope breaks, and then they're like, oh, okay, well now I'll just do a submission hold in the ropes. I'll use a tarantula. But I would say that the notion of the pure wrestling rules is not to get around them, but to work within them to wrestle a style of match, and we just never got enough of those styles of matches for the pure title. Okay. I I don't know why that was, but they just never quite got it. Do you think maybe
1: people found it too restrictive and didn't have the... um in-ring storytelling ability of one, Brian Danielson.
0: I think that might be the key to it, that they didn't look at it as an opportunity like Danielson did to do some pure wrestling. They looked at it as a plot device, and sometimes yeah. they would do it to be amusing. I think it was after the pure... I can't remember if it was before or after this. I think it must, No, it must have been after, because I think Chris Hero was just still a part of the CZW storyline at this point. But there was a pure rules match that Chris Hero was in, The lights went out and then they came back on a few seconds later and Chris era tried to claim that during that period, his opponents had used all the rope breaks that they had.
1: (laughs) I mean, why not? Why not go for it? But, but with, with Danielson and seeing limitations as opportunities, I remember during one of his, I can't remember how many times he's been on talk is Jericho, but when he was talking about his return, when he returned at WrestleMania to team against Kevin and Sammy, and at one, he's like, at one point. Yeah, at one point, I couldn't feel my arms properly. So um, I, I looked into maybe like doing a gimmick where I just didn't use my arms and just wrestled purely with my legs. But they said no, and I'm like, well, of course they said no. You <laughs> nutcase.
0: Although Brian Danielson does gradually become only one-armed as this match goes on. Indeed. I think the story of this match is also that Nigel McGuinness knows this is his most high-profile match, so whilst he is ultimately coming in as also a defending champion, he feels more of a challenger than Danielson does. Yeah. It wouldn't have meant as much at WrestleMania six for Hulk Hogan to win the Intercontinental title as it would for the Ultimate Warrior to win the world title.
1: Especially if Hulk Hogan hands him said title afterwards. Little bitch, Terry. I see you. He ain't gonna hear this.
0: And so the opening portion of this match is mostly Danielson controlling in the ring on the mat. And they do have these fun exchanges. And as I said, there's one moment in it. I think it's after Nigel McGuinness does a cartwheel out of something. And Danielson takes him down for a headlock. But in that split second, it feels like Nigel McGuinness freezes. Mm. Again, I don't know if that's what it was the case. But it also plays up, I think, a lot of what these Matt Wrestling sequences are, which is Danielson just playing around and seeing what, what works. Yeah, It's not as, like, octopus limbs going all over the place like it is with the Zack Sabre Jr. match. It works within the confines of, like, Matt Wrestling as we understood it in 2006. But mm. it's, again, as is the case with Danielson, as is the case with Bret Hart, if you do it well, then it will always look good. And funnily enough as well, it almost gets structured like a round system in how they work it, where the first portion of the match essentially ends with Nigel McGuinness completely out mat wrestled by Danielson, going to the ropes, the announcement being made, that the first rope break has been used, and that is almost like a round or a break between a fall. And then immediately after that, McGuinness does the heel thing. And it's like, this is like Buddy Rogers, Luther's heel stuff. Of the referee with his head down, hitting him with a single punch. And again, if you work within the limitations, like in wrestling matches in the 2000s, it's just punches and kicks being flown all over the place, but particularly punches. Yeah. But this match has, what, three punches thrown in the whole match? And it's the whole basis of that next chunk of the match.
1: Well, four, technically. Yeah.
0: And again, like like I said, the story of Nigel McGuinness' reign so far is that he was being clever, clever with the tactics. As I said, tying people up, getting them to, forcing them to do rope breaks. The reason he wins the belt off of Samoa Joe is that he hits him with the Tower of London, pins him, Joe loses track of his rope breaks, he's already used them all, puts his foot on the rope, but it's not enough to break the fall.
1: Ah,
0: uh... So it's like, Nigel, it's like a semi-fluke, semi-strategic win over Joe. Like, Joe didn't really get pinned for a three counts.
1: A semi-unforced error.
0: Essentially, yeah. And then when they did the inevitable title match, it's like always that. It's like the default, we want to go over Joe, but we don't want Joe to actually be beaten. Joe goes for a sleep hole. You do the Bret Hart Roddy Piper. Yeah. Roll through cradle, pinning him to the mat, finish. That then becomes the rule. the, the story of this part of the match. And Nigel McGuinness takes Danielson off his game and does the heel thing all the way down to Buddy Rogers, and it's also something you could see in. Well, I mean, they even that's the one thing they do incorporate from the world of sport part of wrestling with the verbal warning elements. <laughs> and so Danielson uses a punch, gets a verbal warning. Nigel tricks him again. Danielson punches him again. Danielson gets a rope break removed.
1: Or Brian Danielson or Daniel Bryan. When you know the area, the areas I watched live and grew up with he was very much he was the tactical genius so it's, it's weird to see him get out-tacticked twice in a minute with the same tactic it just shows obviously that tweener thing he's doing like you mentioned because he is wrestling as a babyface and babyfaces annoyingly have to sometimes lose like 10 to 15 iq points compared to their heel selves
0: It does, but I also think it's playing to the fact that this is Danielson's first pure rules match, and it's not McGuinness's. Right, okay, that makes more sense now. But it's also, the notion is Danielson can be hot-headed, and he is arrogant, and sometimes his arrogance does him, and sometimes he goes in hot, and that leads to him making a mistake. I think, that's the funny thing, like, if you do it well, you, the, the best wrestlers again, and I'm sorry to bring up Bret Hart again, but it's like, Bret Hart loses the belt to Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 12, but they make it clear it's as much because Bret's angry at them going into overtime after he's gone the 60 minutes and Shawn hasn't beaten him. And so in that cloud of anger, he makes the mistake and Shawn Michaels is able to hit him with the sweet chin music and that gets the win.
1: Isn't that sort of how Bret got the belt in a similar way off of Diesel? Is that Diesel showed a rare moment of compassion and Bret rolled him up?
0: Yeah. That'll teach Symmetry. You. <laughs>
1: Don't care about people!
0: <laughs> yeah, and we've said before, like, the masterclass that is how Sasha Banks works her match with Bianca Belair, or how Hiroshi Tanahashi works Kazuchika Okada. And even though he's wrestling the perfect game, essentially, Okada can get past that or Katsuyuri Shibata trying to win the perfect victory over Okada in their match as well.
1: Well, yeah. With a very heavy penalty.
0: <laughs> mm. And so, in a way, this is like Danielson trying to out-pure the pure champion, but in that moment, and Nigel in,' is kind of realizing that moment, I can't out-mat-wrestle this guy in a fair fight. And there'd already been that in the match where Danielson goes to the mat and just is inviting him down. Like Nate Diaz trying to engage Anderson Silva. I don't know if this is before or after that.
1: I immediately thought of him. I thought of that meme when uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys hear a burglar in their
0: house and it's them lying on the mat
1: like that. <laughs> yeah. They mocked those sort of martial arts and get hard with Kevin Hart and Will Ferrell because him, like a very naive rich man at the start, he, he learned capoeira. But obviously, he doesn't know how to use it properly. And then it's one of him him coming good at the end is he actually does good capoeira in a fight scene and like, batters some people.
0: Well, there you go, love, listeners. You want to go for what's, what's out of nowhere references Simon Cross going to make? He's going to make the failed Kevin Hart, Will Ferrell, a best 4 out of 10 comedy movie, Get Hard.
1: See, you never see him coming. Angles, angles yeah. to this.
0: Around this time, Danielson had been doing a lot of MMA. Like he was considering going into MMA at various points around this time. I was thinking another reference point it could be where around this time Sakuraba was having these fights, and very often it would be a situation where Sakuraba's knocked them to the floor. He's standing above them and they're not getting up. Like in his Hoist Gracie fight, he was doing that, and sometimes he just go ah to hell with it and just jump on them, (laughs) (laughs) stomp on their faces.
1: Yeah. Sorry, quick, aside. I'm just seeing a lot of that now with the whole Fury and Garnou fight that happened recently. It's like, imagine how dead Tyson Fury would be if he was allowed to do his, like, hammer fists once he knocked him down.
0: Well, that's just always the way, isn't it? Like, the that's why boxers never engage MMA on their game. They always have to do it in boxing because they know. They saw what happened when James Tony took on Rodney Couture. He did what everyone assumed he was going to do. Fight starts, double leg. You're on the mat, you go, you don't know what to do.
1: I mean, at the end of the day, it is Randy Cato.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that didn't seem to be what James Tony realised. Didn't know what that meant.
1: Ah, <laughs> oh, his name's Randy. Oh, batter him. Oh, God.
0: <laughs> but even if it had been Floyd Mayweather against Conor McGregor, and Conor McGregor, in relative terms, is a shite map fighter. It's like when he was having that fight with Nate Diaz, and Nate Diaz, just because he's Nate Diaz, just could not be knocked out. And yeah. Connor got knackered, so he went for a double leg. And Nate says, "Oh, so you're a wrestler? Suddenly, are you?" <laughs> and the fight's over within the next twenty seconds. Just stretch out the legs.
1: It's full on khabib. We're talking now, aren't we?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just business. <laughs>
1: it's just it's just business. I don't give
0: a fuck. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: hilarious! Another thing that Danielson does brilliantly throughout all this is he's always in McGuinness's head and there's always that inferiority complex with McGuinness you get it even more in the next match it is that sense of Danielson knows that he's better than everyone and no one can match him at this level and that has been the story he's had people that have come close Roderick Strong and others but Danielson when the time comes to it he's always that little bit better but what they do that's so good with the world champion and Ring of Honor around this time is they've always got multiple stories on the go. Very often tied to the specific venues that they're at. And we'll go more into that in episode two of this discussion as well. But yeah, the, the fundamental story of the match is how does McGuinness get up to Danielson's level. And then just gradually as the match goes on, he does start to improve. And then there's moments where McGuinness has a babyface flurry. And there's like... The underhandedness of that part, like the second round of the match, really McGuinness no longer does that as the match goes on, and then when he's used up all his rope breaks and he's in the cattle mutilation, again, it's not Danielson doing the clever thing of doing the tarantula hold in the ropes or anything, or like a a rope-assisted cattle mutilation. It's that you're getting the submission in the ring, and if McGuinness has already failed to get out of using the ropes on other occasions... How's he going to do it this time in what is one of Danielson's key finishing holds? That...
1: Well, yeah, he backs himself with the cattle mutilation, doesn't he?
0: But what McGinnis does, again, is that that's the time where he got his notion of the pure rules, but not to be cute or use it to his advantage and get a tainted victory. He uses it because the only way he can get out of this hold is if he can change the levels by pushing himself to the outside and therefore having the leverage on the floor, gravity doing its job, and so Danielson can't hold on to it. Yeah. And a submission doesn't count outside the ring anyway. But what is great as well as that is how they utilize the tope in this match, because in the vast majority of matches, tope's are used, but in the vast majority of matches that use a tope, they're happening in usually the first five to ten minutes to play up the, the excitement, Or yeah. maybe at a midway point where you're at a lull. In this one, it's used because Nigel McGuinness is so hurt and so damaged that Danielson can smell blood in the water and McGuinness isn't even looking at the ring and that allows Danielson to hit him with the tope. So there's actual strategic logic in him using a tope in that moment, not just this will get a pop from the crowd.
1: Yeah. Oh, what? there's a crowd of wrestlers nearby. Gotta do it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then that plays into the finish as well because he knows he knew how effective it was the first time. And the match has got heated up, and they're finally exchanging not punches, but hard forearms and ramming each other into the ropes. And, and Nigel McGuinness has brought the table in, and like that was his underhanded heel moment at that when he was going for that traditional Nigel McGuinness win of tying them up at something, getting in the ring at 17, and usually the opponent can't recover in time to get in at 20. But in this instance, years before New Japan made this the cliche that it was, Danielson gets in at 19.
1: He looks devastated as well he's like oh come on
0: <laughs> i did everything right well that's what's clever they use all of the ways that they these guys won the title or won most of their matches there's a way of getting out of it mcguinness gets out of the cat mutilation he gets out of the crossface chicken wing which was the hold that he won the belt with against james gibson danielson is able to kick out of the Tower of London that won the that won the title for McGinnis against Samoa Joe because he still has a rope break left. Yeah, He's able to beat the camp, which is the way that most of the people who lost their title match to Nigel McGinnis have done so. So it's like Nigel McGinnis realizes, I've got to actually beat this guy. <laughs> and again, he's not quite able to. And um, D- Danielson has him in such trouble with the taupey And then he sends him into the crowd and he gets ready to do his dive. And in the last desperation moment, McGuinness is able to get a chair up. And that was the one moment where it was like, you just about got it, but it did still seem like he got hit by it just as badly as Danielson. Yeah. I think it would have been maybe more cool if it had been more of a case of Nigel sidestepping him and maybe not clocking with the chair because that would bring an automatic disqualification. So I guess that was the other way of doing it, like the idea that, Nigel McGuinness didn't even know he was there. And obviously, you've got to do it safer. Yeah. But it's a clever enough finish to give McGuinness the win. And I love how they tease up the, the, and the ring announcer doesn't realise that whilst it's under pure rules, that doesn't mean that the world title changes hands. It just means that he won the match under the pure rules. So whilst they announced in the commentary, you can lose the pure title by count out or disqualification.
1: You can't lose the world title.
0: It's like I said, sometimes they would book two out of three falls matches where the champions would get disqualified in one of the falls. And because there was a disqualification, then they get pinned in the deciding fall. Or the second fall, because I've seen them lose it too straight. Because one of them was a DQ, then it doesn't count. But then when the Heart Foundation beat Demolition for it at SummerSlam 90, the Demolition did get DQ'd in one of them. But it does count. Yeah. Asking for consistency in wrestling rules is always a, is always a problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I am a, I'm on a Harding to nothing there, aren't
0: I? <laughs> <laughs> but Ring of Honor was the place that usually did it justice more than anyone. But as I say, the pure title had never really... I think also maybe Gabe Polsky had ideals, but because it got turned around, it got there were so many bad luck moments, like maybe you wanted to build it, the belt up with Doug Williams but couldn't. Maybe you wanted to build the belt up with John Walters, but then John Walters shot it in the foot, so they had to do it again didn't have anyone to do it with, put it on Samoa Joe, but Samoa Joe was never going to work within these kind of rules that feature what people would understand pure wrestling as it was to be. And even to this day, I, like, Marty Scurll brought back the pure title. I guess it was still under 21 years old in its existence at that point, so he was interested. I'm like, is he going to? And of course he's going to. <laughs> and they've done it, and they've tried to do it more justice, but... And obviously, Katsuyori Shibata, nothing screams pure rules more than that, but just Ring of Honor just continues to feel like an irrelevance. Yeah. Well, is kind
1: of, a, because of his circumstances, pure yeah. seems the safest place to put him.
0: Yeah, but Shibata doesn't deal with circumstances. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we see plenty of dangerous wrestling involving the pure title as time goes on. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of where I've got with this match. It's a great... Starter, Like, I would go four to four and a quarters for this match within that range. Yeah. And it even feels like they know they're holding stuff back. This is just the first chapter of a planned furthering. The
1: finish is a perfect example of that as well. Because it gives Nigel legitimate grievance. And the the crowd are chanting bullshit at the end. Because it's like, well, he
0: won! He won! (laughs) But it is a fuck finish in a place where... Ring of Honor don't like to do those too much. The dusty finishes. Like, this is as close as Ring of Honor comes to doing one. Except for the time where they were hosting an NWA World title match between... I think it might have been between... I think it might have been a title versus title match as well. And they did do the classic top rope disqualification. So Adam Pearce held on to the title even though the Ring of Honor champion beat him for it, or something along those lines. <laughs> Full-on tribute. And also, interestingly, if if you look at how they booked this show as well, this wasn't the main event. Yeah. So if you were going to do a big deal title change, you book it as your main event. Yeah. But they knew they were going to do a fuck finish, and you don't leave a Ring of Honor f- crowd. On a fuck finish. Yeah. So they then followed it up with a tag title match between Austin Aries and Roderick Strong, against Jimmy Rave and Alex Shelley. And that was at the time, again, the tag team titles had also had their peaks and troughs in Ring of Honor. And this was the time where they put it on Austin Aries and they were also still building up Roderick Strong. And so this was around the time outside of when the Briscoes had the belts that the tag titles were considered main event worthy. So it's funny around this time, like, Gabe always knew that he hadn't booked the other titles as well and he'd always booked the world title brilliantly always done that really from the starts and weirdly this peak of the pure title comes from danielson as it so often does and McGuinness actually being forced to not be cute with the rules but have to try and become the best wrestler he can be with those rules yeah and that is the continuing point of the story as we get to the next chapter which is the next episode Um what is the event simon
1: The event is Generation Now. Interesting name for an event. It takes place exactly three months later, on the 29th of July 2006, at the same place as well, the Cleveland Grays Armoury.
0: But because McGuinness has already successfully defended his pure title... He doesn't have to put the belt up against Danielson, but because the world champion has now lost to someone, that guy has legitimate means to claim they deserve a title shot. So the pure rules are out of the window, and McGuinness has everything to win and nothing to lose at this point as challenger to Danielson's world title. And Danielson looking to get a victory over one of the few people that got a one-up on him in a match where he was the defending champion. So until that point, Simon, if we want to get in touch with you to give you more details about more recommendations for other Kevin Hart films that you must check out, (laughs) a fellow Get Hard fan realising they finally found a friend, you're the (laughs) other guy that likes it. How can they do so?
1: Uh, They can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm sending the Simon Cross free and I'm going for the predictable one free for the number of rule breaks you're allowed under pure rules.
0: My name's Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N for has anyone ever heard of Get Hard since the year 2012? Well, it it came out earlier than that, I'm sure it did. Yeah, but people might have talked about it for a couple of years after. But that's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd. If you put in our gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod.gmail.com. lmtyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. Simon is clearly looking up what year Get was released in. I'm going to guess 2010?
1: Okay. No, uh, we've both completely overshot. 2015
0: wow it's the last time anyone spoke about it with any sense that it might be any good would have been back in 2012 when the, <laughs> the was stick a deer guns I admire it I admire it <laughs> but until then there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen
1: my name's Simon Cross
0: thank you for letting us tell you something I hope you will continue with us as we rerun the rivalry Take it!